This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 36 to 40. And the title for the message this morning is God Desires Reverence and Obedience. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 36 to 40. And the word of God says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And so, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we pray that as we prepare to walk through this uh, final section of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Lord, we pray that you would focus our attention upon you and upon your word. We pray that you would clear our minds of all of the cares and distractions of this world that our minds and our attention may not wander. But Lord, we pray that you would enable us, that you would cause us to be riveted upon uh, your voice that speaks to us today in the here and now through your word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would edify our souls, and that you would uh, help us to take to heart and to apply to our lives of the message uh, of your word from this passage of Scripture. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as Paul is wrapping up his teaching on church worship, which, as you recall, stems from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14, that is really one unit where Paul is uh, talking about just how we ought to behave in corporate worship. Prior to that, he's talking about just the church in general, how we interact with one another, how we treat one another. But in chapters uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14, he is specifically dealing with corporate worship. And he knows that he has made some very difficult statements that are likely going to land on his readers um, uh, in the wrong way. And, uh, and he must have been right about that. He must have been right because we'll read uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the follow-up letter. He'll say there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, for example, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul says, look, I didn't write 1 Corinthians to cause you pain. I wasn't trying to upset you. I wrote that letter out of my abundant love for you because I care about you. He'll say this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 to uh, 11. There he'll say, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. 
For they say, which is probably something, he's, he's now citing something that would have been written in the follow-up letter, right? So he writes 1 Corinthians, they write back, and now he's responding in 2 Corinthians. And so he says in verse 10, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter, when absent, we do when present. In other words, Paul is saying, I will back up what I'm saying by my actions if this behavior continues in that church. But he says in verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. I'm not trying to scare you. But he recognizes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he recognizes that he has said many difficult things and that likely... Uh, this is going to land on some of them the wrong way. And not just in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, but really from the beginning of the book, he has said some difficult things, right? Just to sort of recap and remind you, remember that in chapter 1, he told them that there ought to be no divisions among you. This whole idea that I'm siding with Peter, or I'm siding with Paul, or I'm siding with Apollos, this is ridiculous, Paul says. We're one church. We're one body. Christ is the head of this one church. We ought not to have our favorite pastors, our favorite apostles, our favorite bloggers, or whatever the case may be, but we all follow Christ. He'll then tell them in chapter 3 that they are acting like infants, that you're still, in, you're still behaving as though you're in the flesh. He says, you know, at this point, I should be able to feed you solid food, but I can't. I got to give you milk. Because you're acting like a bunch of babies in the way that you are behaving. In chapter 5, he'll tell them that they need to be willing to kick their friends out of the church because of um, unchecked sexual immorality. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how close they are to you. It doesn't matter how much they give to the church. If they are unrepentant and living in unrepentant sin, you need to be able to bring church discipline upon them and to remove them from church membership. In chapter 6, he'll tell them that those who practice homosexuality will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who engage in that kind of a lifestyle cannot believe that they will inherit eternal life. That would have landed on them a hard way in the first century Greek world that the Corinthians were familiar with. This is not just a modern problem. In the first century Greek world, they would have known many people who engaged in homosexuality because they thought it was normal in that culture. We are not far removed from the first century Greek world. In chapter 7, he'll tell them that they cannot divorce their spouse for any reason except for abandonment and adultery. That probably didn't sit well with them. It doesn't sit well with people today. It doesn't matter how terrible of a person you're married to, unless they write you a Dear John letter and simply disappear, Paul will say in chapter 7, or unless they actually engage in physical sexual adultery with someone else, Paul says, you're stuck. Not a popular message in that culture, not a popular message in today's culture. And then in chapter 11, well, then he really starts to tread on thin ice in chapter 11. He tells women how to dress. He says that women ought to have a sign of authority on their head 
if they are going to prophesy or pray in church, and if they don't have a symbol of authority on their head, they are to remain silent. Again, in chapter 11, he rebukes them for their abuse of the Lord's Supper. That they're acting again, childish, selfish, people going ahead of each other, neglecting the poor, not allowing them to take the Lord's Supper because, well, they probably didn't contribute much in the first place. And then in 13, he'll tell them, or he told them, that none of what they do matters if it's not done in love. Doesn't matter what your gifts are. Doesn't matter what your talents are. Doesn't matter what your abilities are. If you're not doing what you do out of a genuine heart of love for God and love for the saints, Paul says you are wasting your life. You're wasting your life. And then in 14, he'll tell them how to regulate prophecy in tongues. It ought to be done orderly. Everybody can't speak in tongues at the same time. Everybody can't prophesy at the same time. No more than two or three. That's the limit. Two or three. And each in turn. And if there's no one to interpret the tongues and you don't say it at all, keep it to yourself. Don't try to impress people in church. And now, at the end of chapter 14, he then says that if women have any questions about what is done in church or what is spoken of in church, they ought to remain silent and ask their husbands when they get home. Boy, Paul's asking for trouble. Talk about opening a can of worms. I mean, with this letter, Paul just opened up a whole truckload of worms, right? <laughs> he dumped it all out on them. It's no wonder they responded the way they did. And so then in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing back saying, Look, I wrote what I wrote because I love you. Because I love you, I'm not going to sugarcoat the truth. But had Paul written this letter today, my goodness. I mean, he probably would have been doxxed on the internet. Right? His house would have been swatted several times, I'm sure. He would have been banned from Facebook and every other social media outlet that is out there, and the IRS would probably be knocking on his door wanting to audit his tax returns. Because you are a threat to our national security. Right? Writing the stuff that you write? Who writes this kind of stuff? What rock did you crawl out from under, Paul? Nobody thinks this way. Nobody believes this. Where do you come off writing these sort of offensive commands to us? And so he anticipates that there's, there's going to be backlash from what he wrote. And so he says in verse 36, Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, did the gospel, did the word of God originate with the church in Corinth? It's a rhetorical question, right? They know the answer to that. No! Paul brought them the gospel. Paul brought them the word of God. Paul was the one who planted the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He goes there, shares the gospel with people, leads people to the Lord, establishes a church, and then stays there for at least a year and a half to our knowledge and disciples them and trains them and teaches them. Of course, you can't teach somebody everything there is to know about God in just 18 months, 
right? That's a lifetime of learning. But he spends at least 18 months with them, teaching them the word of God. And thus, this is Paul's way of reminding them when he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? He's reminding them who's the teacher here and who's the disciple, right? I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. I'm the one who brought the word of God to you. I'm the one who has the authority to teach you what God commands. The second rhetorical question is, or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, can the Corinthians claim exclusive access to the word of God? Have they cornered the market on the word of God? Are they the only ones who know the truth of what God desires, what God wants of us? Obviously, the answer to that question is no. So Paul, in a sense, is gently, with these two questions, putting them in their place. He's reminding them that they are in no position to question the writings of Paul. Because they knew nothing about God before he got there. They knew nothing about the God of creation. They knew nothing about the Old Testament. They knew nothing about Christ as the Messiah. They were all living in darkness and on their way to hell. So Paul reminds them, you're the disciple and I'm the teacher, teaching you the truths of Scripture. So now Paul gets to his main point in the paragraph in verse 37. (coughs) If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. They are a command of the Lord. If anyone believes that he has the gift of prophecy, if anyone believes that he is spiritual, meaning spiritually mature, you know, certainly there were some within the church in Corinth who thought that way about themselves. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the mature ones. Right? I know the word of God. I know it well. I spent a lot of time with the apostle Paul. I'm one of those within the church that everyone looks to for guidance. Paul says, if anyone believes that or thinks that he is mature, then he should recognize that Paul writes the very commands of God. This is because Paul was commissioned an apostle. We know that from Acts chapter 9, when Christ confronts him on the Damascus road and Paul is converted, regenerated, made alive at that very moment seeing and witnessing the resurrected Christ, Christ says to him right then and there, you, I am going to send you to the Gentiles to speak on my behalf. Right then and there, Paul is commissioned by Christ to be an apostle, to speak the authoritative word of God. And this isn't just... This isn't just because Paul says so. Paul doesn't expect the church in Corinth or anyone to believe that he was commissioned by Christ simply because he says he was commissioned by Christ. Because like the prophets of the Old Testament, Paul's authority was accompanied by signs and miracles. Just to name a few, we see in Acts chapter 13 that Paul strikes a 
magician, a sorcerer blind for opposing his message, Paul simply looks at him and says to him, you know what, at this very moment, you are going to be blind and no longer able to see the sun for a time. And immediately the man is blind, can't see. And it says his friends had to lead him by the hand. We're told in Acts chapter 14 that Paul healed a crippled man from birth who was begging for money. Scripture tells us that Paul looked at him and said, Arise and walk. And he got up and walked. Acts chapter 20, we're told that Paul raised a dead man back. That's a serious one. There are very few people in the Bible that have done that miracle. Paul brought a man back to life from the dead who had fallen from a third-story window. Paul raises him to life. So Paul's authority... His commissioning as an apostle is accompanied by signs and miracles just like the prophets of the Old Testament. And thus to oppose Paul, to not listen to the words of Paul, to disagree with the words of Paul, is to not listen or to disagree with God himself. For this reason that the other apostles also recognized the writings of Paul so in other words, this isn't just Paul saying this for himself. It's not just the signs and the miracles that testify to the authority of Paul as an apostle of Christ. But we also see, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this. And keep in mind, this is the Peter that was rebuked to his face by Paul for his hypocrisy. Peter says... And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Talking about Paul. And as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I'm always comforted by the fact that I'm not the only one that struggled with understanding Paul. Peter said, look, I understand there's things that Paul writes that are difficult to understand. But then he goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, destruction as they do, listen, the other scriptures. So Peter lumps the writings of Paul, his letters, he lumps them in with the other scriptures, which in Peter's day would be the Old Testament. He's putting the writings of Paul into the same category as the writings of Moses, of Elijah, of Jeremiah. This is what people do with the other scriptures as well. So Peter recognizes that whatever Paul writes, he writes the very words of God. And so Paul says to them, in chapter 14, verse 37 of 1 Corinthians, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, we simply do not have the option of disagreeing with Scripture. We don't have the option of saying, well, I just don't like that part. Because to disagree with Scripture is to disagree with God himself. 
It is to say to God, I don't like what you wrote, and therefore I'm not going to follow it. That is not going to sit well with the creator of the universe when you stand before him at the day of judgment. And so for that reason, Paul offers a very strong warning then in verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He is not recognized. Now, some older translations, such as the King James Version, says, if anyone is ignorant, let, let him be ignorant. Right? Let him be ignorant. However, of the, uh, and, it, and, and the, the Greek can be a little difficult to understand. And so I will tell you that of the nine commentaries that I referenced in preparing for this morning, most believe that the ESV and the New American Standard have it correct in understanding it uh, in this way. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. However, the bigger question the bigger question is those who do not recognize or acknowledge what Paul says as being authority, authoritative will not be recognized or is not recognized or acknowledged by whom? Right? That's the question. He is not recognized. By whom? By Paul? Is Paul saying, I am not going to recognize that person as a prophet within the church? Anyone who claims to be a prophet but doesn't recognize that what I write is the very command of the Lord will not be recognized or is not recognized by me. Is that what he means? Or does he mean is not recognized by the church? The church should not recognize that individual as a New Testament prophet or as being someone who is spiritually mature. Or is Paul saying is not recognized by God himself? Because uh, any of those three are possibilities. Any of those three are possibilities, and it can be difficult to know. However, likely I believe that Paul is saying that that person is not recognized by God. I think that's a strong warning that Paul has given. That person is not recognized by God. First off, this is what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. There in that passage, uh, Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples. He sends them out, gives them authority to cast out demons, to proclaim the gospel. And then he says to them, as he is about to send them out, anyone who receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The implication also being then, anyone who does not receive you does not receive me, and whoever does not receive me does not receive the one who sent me. Right? Those who do not acknowledge your authority, apostles, are rejecting my authority. They're not acknowledging me. And if they don't acknowledge me, they're not acknowledging God the Father. And they themselves will not be acknowledged. I.e. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following. On the last day, many will come to me, Jesus says, Say, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. We've prophesied, New Testament prophets, we prophesied, performed miracles, even the demons obeyed. And Jesus said, and I will declare unto them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I have never known you. 
doesn't matter what they do in the church, doesn't matter how involved they were in ministry within the church, God will not acknowledge those who do not acknowledge the authority of those whom he sent to speak and write on his behalf. That's a strong warning. Paul is saying, those who do not acknowledge what I write as being the very command of the Lord, that person will not be acknowledged. You know, this passage speaks to the inerrancy and the sufficiency of God's word. And this is important because even among professing Christians, even among professing Christians, there are some who want to say that the Bible cannot be fully trusted. You know, it's just, it's, it's a great, you know, yeah, I go to church and, I, and, I, and, I, and we worship and, and, and the pastor gets up there and, and he or she says something out of this book and it, it's full of all kinds of, you know, great wisdom and folksy wisdom and, and guidance and advice for life. But, you, you know, you don't want to slavishly follow this book because it, it's just, it's, it's full of all kinds of mistakes. I mean, we know that. And so we can't really just take it so seriously. There are people who call themselves Christians that talk that way. But if the Bible cannot be trusted, listen, then neither can God. If this book cannot be trusted, then neither can God be trusted. Because if God is perfect and all-powerful and trustworthy, and if you believe that about God, then how could a perfect, all-powerful, trustworthy God leave us with an imperfect and untrustworthy revelation of himself? How is that possible? That can only be possible if... God is not perfect, or God is not all-powerful, or God is not trustworthy. He cannot be trusted, or all three of those are true. And if all three of those are true, or if any one of those is true, then we're wasting our time. We are wasting our time in worshiping or praying or trusting a God that is not perfect, that is not all-powerful, that is not, who is not trustworthy, because there's no guarantee that he's going to keep his promise to bring you into eternal life. There's no guarantee that there even is an eternal life. Maybe there is no heaven. Maybe there is no hell. Maybe this world is all there is. You see, those are the choices that we are faced with. There is no in-between. Either this book is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, trustworthy word of God. Or if it's not, then we walk away from all of this Christianity stuff and we go out and we eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There is no in between. It's one or the other. And you can't. Play semantics with God. You see, this is what Paul is talking about. It's simply not going to work 
to get to the day of judgment and say, well, God, I didn't think verses 34 and 35 were in the original text. So I just ignored those entirely. Because God would respond, although he doesn't respond to people, but if he did, he might say something like, what kind of a God do you think I am that I would allow a passage to remain in your Bible that shouldn't have been there? What kind of a puny God do you think that I am that I couldn't somehow figure out a way to keep that out when it shouldn't have been in there or vice versa? If it's there, it's because I wanted it there. Because God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is perfect. God is trustworthy. And so is his word. Thus, anyone who does not recognize this, anyone who does not recognize the writings of Paul, anyone who does not recognize the writings of the apostles and the prophets as being the very word of God, Paul says that person will not be recognized by God himself. But now Paul wants to soften his rebuke just a little. And he wants to ensure that he's not misunderstood. And so he says in verse, not, verse 39, And so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Right? At the end of the day, Paul doesn't want to discourage them from seeking after spiritual gifts or for praying for spiritual gifts. He doesn't want to discourage them uh, from using the gifts in church, prophecy and tongues. And, and he has said this before. This is now the third time that Paul has said this. Back in chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Do this. Desire the higher gifts. He'll say in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then he says it again in verse 39. And so, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Right. In the end, Paul wants to make sure that they're not misunderstanding him. Right? I'm not saying don't do these things. I'm just saying that they have to be done a certain way. I'm not saying that women can't ever, you know, speak in church. As soon as they walk through the door, they can't say anything. Paul says, I'm not saying that. But there, there is a, an appropriate time and place and means for which that should take place. But in the end, Paul's main concern he repeats in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. That's really what this all comes down to. That's what Paul wants him to understand. At the end of the day, everything that we do in church must be done decently and in order. I mean, that's what chapters 11 to 14 have been all about. In fact, that's what the entire book of 1 Corinthians has been all about. That the way that you function as a church, the way that you interact with one another, and especially the way that you engage in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, must be done decently and in order. 
Why? Verse 33, because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace and of order. And not only what we do in corporate worship, but simply how we function as a church should reflect the God we serve. Should reflect the God we serve. And so Paul writes this letter and he uses strong language because he's trying to right the ship, right? The, 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 the first Corinthians, uh, the, 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 the Corinthian church ship is, is healing, right? It's leaning to one side and Paul is trying to correct. And this is serious because they are engaged in, in so much turmoil and disunity in this church. Paul recognizes that they're in danger. They are in danger of no longer existing as a church. So in the end, Paul wants them to understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God breathed. All Scripture is God speaking. I know you've heard me say this before, that the Bible is not a record of what God has spoken. The Bible is God speaking to us in the here and now. Right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 tells us that the Word of God is a two-edged sword and it is living and able to divide uh, bone and marrow and the division of soul. Right? It is living. The Word of God is living. It is alive and God speaks to us in the here and now. This is because, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, there he says, No scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? Scripture wasn't just made up by people. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so to read God's Word and to disregard it or to take it lightly is to look into the face of God and say to Him, you know, I'm not going to take what you say very seriously because I don't think I agree with you, God. I don't think I agree with the way that you want me to live my life. But those who choose not to take God's word very seriously should learn a valuable lesson from Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. God was very clear in the Old Testament. No one touches the ark of God under any circumstance. He never even gave an exception to that. God did not say, do not touch the ark unless. There was no unless. You don't touch the ark of God. And it was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. You go back and you read 2 Samuel 6, and the first mistake they made was that they placed the ark of God on an ox cart, as though it was just furniture. The ark was considered the very throne of the living God. They put it on the back of an ox cart, as though it's just furniture. That was their first mistake. Testing God's patience at that moment, and God is being patient. 
I'm always surprised he didn't strike everybody dead at that moment. But he let them go. And then the ark begins, the, the, the cart begins to, to, to stumble. And the ark begins to slide. And Uzzah reaches out and he sets his hand on the ark to stop it from falling into the mud. See, two mistakes Uzzah made. Number one, he disregarded what God had said. And number two, he thought that his hand was cleaner than the mud that God created. But mud is not sinful. Mud is not wicked. Mud is always obedient to God. Mud does exactly what God tells it to do. Uzzah was a sinful, evil individual because all humans are sinful. He put his hand on the ark of God and that's when God's patience runs out. And he says, I've had enough. And he strikes him dead. God does that because God desires reverence and obedience. God is the great king of all kings. He is the sovereign of the universe. Our duty is to worship, revere, and obey. And that is where eternal life comes from. Eternal life comes from hearing God's word and believing it and obeying it, namely, so that you don't think I'm talking about work salvation here, the very first command that Jesus gave was repent, believe, um, and repent of your sins. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Believe and repent. That's what Jesus commanded in Mark chapter 1. Those are commands. We are to believe that Christ came into the world and died on the cross for sinners. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. And if you do that, Jesus promises eternal life is yours. He commands that we believe and repent. Right? And thus, eternal life comes from giving God the reverence and the obedience that he desires. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we, um, not only as we continue to walk through Scripture on Sundays, but Lord, we pray that as we read your word daily, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would cause us to remember the, the words of the Apostle Paul, the strong warning, Lord God, that we would recognize that as we read your word on a daily basis that, that, that Scripture is you speaking to us, communicating to us your desire for our lives, and we pray that we would take those desires to heart, that we would seek to follow them, follow every dot and every tittle, not because we strive to earn anything from you or earn eternal life. We know that that is not possible. All that is needed for eternal life has already been accomplished by Christ. But we pray that you would give us an extreme desire to live out your word out of love and gratitude for all that you have done for us. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to demonstrate our love for you in seeking to be obedient to your every command. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.